still on there, archived, and you can go back and listen to them again. And I want to encourage you in those areas. Um, this is another one night that we're going to deal with um, a topic that uh, I think is very important that a lot of people don't understand. Again, it's probably not one of those um, life-changing truths that will cause us to go out here and just have great revival in our hearts, but something that will help us to know what the Scripture teaches about it. And that it's a, it really it's a subject um, that almost directly, but at least very indirectly to to a, a large extent, has been responsible for a single doctrinal error that has cost the lives of literally millions of people over the last centuries, and that is this question: uh, Do babies go to heaven when they die? You say, Brother Greg, why has that created such a problem? Well, if you believe that babies uh, have to be saved in order to go to heaven, and that leads then how do they get saved when they're not able to make a decision? So then you go to the Bible and you start finding some scriptures that might help you to think that maybe baptism is required uh, for salvation. Then they say, okay, well now baptism needs to be done at the earliest age possible so that these babies can go to heaven. And then they come up with infant baptism. It's kind of a, an indirect way to get to that doctrine. But infant baptism has been, uh, along with a few other issues of doctrine, but probably infant baptism and baptismal regeneration, which go hand in hand, have been the, the, the most errant doctrine down through history that has cost the lives of more martyrs uh, than we could probably even number tonight. Literally millions of people have given their lives over this particular doctrine of, uh, of uh, baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. And uh, so we're going to deal with the topic, do babies go to heaven when they die? And uh, I'm going to tell you at the very onset, the Bible does not tell us specifically, uh, verbatim, I can't take you to a verse that says, here's where the babies go to heaven. But there are things that the Bible does teach about the subject that will allow us to draw uh, a conclusion from it uh, that we can pretty firmly stand on because, again, there's enough evidence from Scripture and support of Scripture about this topic. So we're going to look at some things here uh, regarding that. As we get into it, we're also going to get uh, dabble into the subject of what about the age of accountability. Uh, or I, I heard one preacher talk about it this way, and, I, and I've often struggled with how to, how to do this because you talk about age of accountability, but then you have people that sometimes are... Um, developmentally disabled, that never reach a point of accountability, uh, and it's not dependent upon an age. So really we would probably call it the level uh, of accountability, when you reach a level uh, where you're now accountable for things. And so we're going to deal with that topic a little bit and see what the Bible has to say about those things. And hopefully by the end of the night we'll have a pretty firm grasp on this and uh, that it's not something that's up for uh, a lot of discussion or debate on it. First of all, we're going to look at uh, some of the issues that uh, we, we find in even coming to this issue. We're going to start in Romans chapter number 5 <clears throat> in verse number 12. Romans chapter 5 in verse number 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so again, we find that the Bible teaches very clearly that we inherit a sin nature all the way back from the time of Adam. Uh, when Adam and Eve died uh, or uh, sinned in the Garden of Eden, 
because of that, the Bible says sin is passed, uh, sin in the world, and death by sin. And so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so we have taught for centuries and years uh, the idea that when we are born, we are born with a sinful nature, a nature of sin, a, a, a tendency by nature to gravitate or be prone to sinning. Uh, I've said oftentimes that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Uh, we started with a, uh, a, what the Bible refers to as a corruptible nature. And because of that, it had a tendency and a propensity to go and sin. And uh, as soon as it was capable of us to do it, we began to do it. Because that was what our, our uh, tendency was by nature. John chapter number 14, if you'll turn over there for a moment. Uh, we find that the only way to, um, to escape this thing uh, of falling short and being in a sinful uh, condition and uh, being sinners, John chapter number 14 and verse number 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven uh, for those that uh, are sinners by nature, those that... Um, have sinned against God. And so in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number uh, 6, if you want to write that one down or if you want to turn over to it, it's fine. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith it is impossible to please God. So we're seeing here that there's a, a problem with why we would question this even. Um, we get to Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 2, if you'll take a moment to turn over there with me. Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 2. Let's back up to verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by what? Faith. That's important to know. If you have a pen, you ought to underline it. Therefore, being justified by faith. We're not justified by works. Amen? <laughs> Let me rephrase that. We're not justified by works. Amen. <laughs> there, okay. All right. I hope we don't think we're justified by works tonight. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have access by the grace of God. We have access to this faith that allows us to be saved. God allows us to have this faith. Ephesians chapter number 2, again, dealing in verses 8 and 9, that we are not saved by our works, but the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through what? Faith, not our works. Our works didn't save us. Our works don't keep us saved. So we are not saved by our works. Man has a sinful nature. Turn with me in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and this is where a lot of people uh, begin to make this question a problem. Psalm 51 and verse number 5. The psalmist said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so again, we, we go through these things, and we believe that the Bible teaches these things very clearly. That man is born in a nature uh, that is prone to sinfulness. It's, it's already got its tendency to do that. Its desire is to sin. And so, uh, as we come to uh, a couple things in Scripture, I think that we begin to see God's intention regarding uh, whether or not infants or babies 
uh, go to heaven, or those that reach uh, don't know, don't reach, excuse me, a level uh, where their minds can comprehend some things. One of the first evidences that we have in Scripture is found in Second Samuel. I've used this one often uh, in talking with folks about this particular topic, and this was kind of a, a go-to verse for me uh, or passage. Uh, I've used this at funerals a lot of times. Um, in Second Samuel chapter number twelve. Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter number twelve. Now understand the background of what we're getting ready to read here. Uh, David at this point had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, she had gotten pregnant, and uh, God or uh, David had had Uriah, her husband, sent to the front of the battle. And then at a signal, uh, all the troops withdrew except for Uriah, and he was left out there on the front. And, and virtually, David uh, committed murder. He, he he murdered the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, because she was pregnant with David's baby. And uh, Nathan the prophet comes. And by the way, you can never hide your sin from God. God knows. It's amazing to me how oftentimes we in our lives uh, sin and we think, boy, nobody saw that. And yet we have to understand God sees it and God knows it. And God came, God sent Nathan the prophet to David and uh, gave him a parable of a man who had only one sheep and then the rich man next door that had many sheep. And a friend came, and they were going to throw a feast. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his own many sheep, he went over to the, the, the neighbor's house that only had the one and took the one. And David heard of the injustice of this man. And Nathan said, what do you think should be done to this guy? And David said, boy, he ought to be killed, and, and that lamb ought to be restored, and, and uh, this man ought to be uh, paid, paid the payment of death for this. And Nathan looks at David and points his finger at him and says, thou art the man. You're the one that did this. And, um, but they had a child, if you'll remember, Bathsheba's first child. And because of that, Nathan told David, and this is just the mercy of God, he said, God is not going to take your life, David. He said, but he is going to take the life of the child. For seven days, the young baby uh, was ill. And for those seven days, David put on sackcloth and ashes and fasted and would not eat anything. And then when the baby passed away, the servants were so nervous about telling him, they didn't know what was going to happen. If David was so sorrowful before the baby passed away, they were worried what his reaction would be once the baby had passed away. And uh, so we come to verse number 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel. He came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? that the child may live. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Notice this. Can I bring him back again? 
I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so in, the, in this passage, we find already at the very beginning of this discussion an indication that at least in David's time, the belief was that these infants would be in the place of heaven, that they would go to this place where they could be reunited again. Uh, and David knew of a certainty, so much so that he was willing to be comforted by the fact that he could go and be with his young child sometime during eternity. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter number 7. Revelation chapter number 7. We'll give you another uh, possible reason why we believe that the babies will be in heaven or those that have not reached that uh, age of accountability or that level of accountability yet. <clears throat> Revelation chapter number 7. And again, I don't know that you can take this truth on its own as a standalone truth, as a proof text. But it certainly does contribute to it and helps us to, again, understand some things. In Revelation chapter number 7, verse number 9, the Bible says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, notice this, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And I want to just say this, that there is a very, very slight possibility at best and probably an impossibility that every tongue and every tribe and every nation has at one time had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And yet they are all going to be represented in heaven. There will be some from every tongue and every nation. And um, again, I wouldn't take that particular truth as a solitary truth and say, well, this is a proof and this is how we know. But again, it lends itself to the argument. It helps us to understand this a little bit. Let's look in Luke chapter number, or let's go to Matthew chapter number 19 first. Excuse me. Matthew chapter number 19. In Matthew chapter number 19, in verse number 14, <clears throat> the Bible says, let's back up to verse 13. Then, there, uh, then were there brought unto him, notice this, and, and again, note, note the wording here. Then were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them. Now, little children differing from what? Big children, okay? So, it's specific. These are little children. That he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come to me. Come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he parted thence. Now, a parallel passage to this is found in the book of Luke, and the reason that we know that the phrase little children here is not just a generic statement um, of times when, like John or Peter would say, I write unto you children, uh, meaning the, those of children of the faith. Uh, so it's not a generic term here, but a specific term. And there was a reason why it was used. Look in Luke chapter number 18, and we'll begin reading in verse number 15. Notice the Bible says here, and they brought unto him also, what's the next word? What is it? Infants. Okay? So understand this in Scripture. There are times that uh, a particular writer of Scripture may use a general term or a general phrase that another author writing about the same event may clarify or go further into detail. Um, needing to understand these things that depending on who who they were speaking to and what the perception of the writer was as to who they were speaking to and how well they understood or knew the concept uh, would determine sometimes how they would pin these words. 
So Matthew makes a generalized statement of little children, even though it's fairly specific. Um, Luke goes a little bit further. He's a little more in detail. And he specifies that these children that came to the Lord were infants. All right? So we find that here in verse number uh, 15. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But when Jesus called unto him, he said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now there's something that takes place in these two passages that you will not find anywhere else in Scripture with relation to an unsaved person. And that is the Lord laying His hands on them and blessing them. You will not find that in Scripture of an unsaved person. But we do find that He does this with these infants, with these little children. He puts a blessing upon them. Now, that blessing is not what saved them. It just shows His view of these children, uh, the innocency of their heart. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 18. Again, taking these, all of these scriptures together as a whole, um, there are some denominations out there that would teach that a young person is not eligible to be saved uh, until they're 12 years of age. They think that that's the age of accountability. Um, there's no scriptural reason for that. There are uh, some arguments that people make about the uh, culture of the day and uh, when Jewish boys would become men and these types of things. Um, but look with me, if you will, in uh, Matthew chapter number 18 and verse number 1. Matthew chapter number 18 and verse number 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called, again, here's that phrase, a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them. Now, whether or not this same little child here is the same reference to infants that was in chapter 19 or not, I wouldn't argue that point, but I do know that in chapter 19 he calls them little children, and we find out from Luke that they were infants. So Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That begs the question then, what does he mean by and become like little children? Is he speaking here of the simplicity of faith? Is he speaking here of the simplicity of, uh, uh, of uh, understanding? Or could it be, and this is just the question to be asked, could it be that he's speaking here of a state of innocence? That we get to the place when we are converted, we're saved, that we become just as if we've never sinned under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whosoever, he says in verse number 4, therefore shall humble himself as this little child... The same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and who shall receive one such a little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that the offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee, for off from thee. Uh, for it is better for thee to enter into the life, halt and maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is uh, better for thee to enter into the life with one eye, rather than having two eyes, uh, to be cast into hell fire. Take heed, notice verse number 10, that ye despise not one of these little ones, 
For I say unto you that in heaven their angels, plural, do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And so they, they have angels that are assigned to them, according to this passage, that stand before, their fa- before the Father uh, which is in heaven. So again, just kind of adding to some of the thoughts regarding this. And we're getting ready to kind of draw it all together as we go to Jeremiah chapter number 19. Jeremiah chapter number 19. So everything that we've looked at up until now kind of gives uh, clues, if you will, as if we're, if we're trying to solve this as a mystery. They kind of give clues. They kind of give some evidence towards the idea that children, uh, young children especially, are in heaven. Now we're going to start getting into some scriptures that are a little bit more dogmatic on the issue. Uh, they're going to tell us a little bit further about it. Jeremiah chapter number 19. And look with me, if you will, in verse number 4. Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse number 4. He's speaking here against um, those that have turned against God and those that were sacrificing to idols, Moloch in particular. And in verse number 4, he says, Because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Now, I want you to understand that what they were doing at at this time was that they were taking and they were lighting fires and coals in the arms of these idols and getting them the red hot, and then they would take their babies and they would cast them into the arms of this, this... quote-unquote God, this idol, and these babies would be burned to death as a part of their sacrifice to these unholy gods and these unholy idols. In verse number 4, Jesus, or God, speaking to the nation of Israel and, and rebuking them for it, tells them that they had filled the place with the blood of what? The blood of innocence. That's, that's a pretty interesting thought. The blood of innocence. Well... Let's see if there's anything else in Scripture that helps us with this idea of the innocence of the youth. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter number 1. Deuteronomy chapter number 1. Let's look in verse number 35, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse number 35. Surely there shall not come one of these men of this evil generation... See that good land, which I swear to give unto your fathers. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Also the Lord was angry with me. This is speaking of Moses is speaking here. So, Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither. So even Moses knows he's not going to go in thither. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before thee, he shall go in thither, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. All right? So understand the picture here. They've come to the promised land in a fairly reasonable short length of time from leaving Egypt. They've gone across the wilderness. God has given them uh, the Ten Commandments. God has miraculously provided for them manna and water and brings them to the threshold of Canaan. And if you'll remember, they camped outside of Canaan. 
they sent 12 spies into the land. You remember the story? Uh, we used to sing the little song in Sunday school. Twelve went down to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. You know, we did the little song like that. Ten of them came back said, Boy, the land is great, but there are giants in the land, and we're, we look like grasshoppers in their sights, and there is no way we're going to conquer this land. They're mightier than we are. And yet there was Caleb and Joshua who believed God, that God had promised this land. And they said, Listen, we can do it. God will fight for us. Let's go. Well, the nation of Israel all got together and they listened to the voice of the ten rather than the voice of the two, and they decided not to go into Canaan. And so God here is, is giving His judgment for their lack of faith. He says, okay, Caleb gets to go in, and he's going to get all the land that he walked on while he was in there spying out the land. Moses says, God was angry at me for your sakes, and I'm not even going to get to go in. But he says, Joshua will get to go in. Now notice what it says here in verse number 39. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, the ones that you were worried about that were going to pay the price if they went into the promised land, the ones you thought you were going to lose if you were to fight these battles, that these people would take your children, those children, and notice this, your children, which in that day had what? No knowledge between good and evil. They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. It is in keeping with God's character and His practice that He has done prior to this time that if there is not the knowledge of good and evil, the choice to sin has not been made. And that that leaves them with a level of innocency. He does not judge them, even though they are sinners by nature, and their nature and their propensity of their flesh is to sin, because they have not reached a place where they have a conscience of right and wrong, where they can, they, for the first time on their own, choose to do wrong willingly. Until that point comes, according to this passage, God was not going to judge them for that. That leans very, very far in the direction of the fact that God allows people who have not yet reached that level to be held innocent of those things and not to be judged for them. God is a God who is a God of consistency. And again, we can hold very strongly to this. Now, so the question comes up, okay, when does that time come? Um, I'll give you that answer. And that answer is, I don't know. <laughs> All right? But the Bible gives us a, a clue to that. So look with me, if you will, in Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1. In Romans chapter number 1, uh, as we get down to, oh, we're going to get down verse number, let's go to verse number 17. All right, verse number 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. So it's saying here, those that have been 
justified by the Lord shall live by faith. It's the only way to get justified. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against... Now, I want you to notice who His wrath is against. All right? His judgment here, His wrath. Look with me in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. These are they that know the truth and they commit sin willingly. Now you say, okay, Brother Greg, what about those who have never heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe some of these tribes that nobody's ever come to. The Bible teaches us as we get further on down into, uh, let's go down to verse number 20 for a moment. We're going to, uh, let's go ahead and read verse number 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Okay, so knowing the truth, knowing what's righteous, what's unrighteous, is what is referred to here in verse number 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Every man, I don't care who it is, every man, woman, boy, or girl that has a normal development of their minds and their way of thinking, at some point come to a place where God puts in them the truth of a conscience. There is an innate moral sense among men who have never one time heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who have never one time heard the Bible. There are certain morals that are followed and people that say this is right and this is wrong. What created that conscience in them? We can answer it. We know the answer here, right? What created that conscience in them? God created it. It says here in verse number 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. God put this in them. So, so these are people in verse 18 that are, that are committing ungodliness, unrighteousness, and they, and they do hold to the truth, or they have the idea that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong, and there is a conscience in them whether they're saved or not. Now, they may not have the same conscience that you and I have as Christians, but they have a conscience, and God puts that in them. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath, what? Showed it unto them. Who's them? The ungodly, the unrighteous. Is that what we're speaking about here? He's made it apparent to them. Verse number 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly what? Seen. Being, what's the next word here? Understood by the things that are made. Now, we all understand that there is a point that young people, when they're first born, they don't have any clue, do they? They just are sitting there, ah, they wobble their heads. All they're trying to do is get to the next nap time or the next feeding time. They have no concept. There are some people that are developmentally disabled that never have the concept of a moral center. They never quite reach that point that they can clearly see the things of God. You say, but what about if they don't have the Scriptures? Notice he says this. By the things that are made. So they're understanding these things simply by the creation itself, by what God has done. Even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You say, what's going to happen to the tribes 
over in third world countries that have never one time heard a missionary or a gospel message. Is God going to send them to hell? Unfortunately, yes. Because even the things of nature, the Bible says here in Romans, God gives to them. This, this, this thing of a conscience and knowing right and wrong. God still puts it in them that they can see. Notice it says in verse number 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into the image made like unto corruptible man, into birds and four-foot beasts, and creeping things. And then this is a critical statement, verse number 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We find in Romans chapter number 1 that God's wrath is poured out on those who have the truth but are choosing willingly to stay in their life of ungodliness and unrighteousness. They do not by faith come to God. And lest we wonder who those people are, it's those that have that understanding according to verse number 19. Those things which may be known of God is manifest in them. You say, when is the limit of accountability or the age of accountability? The moment that a young person or an older person is aware consciously that there is a God who is a moral God, that He has a law that we can either choose to follow or violate. And when we willingly depart from what we know to be right, having been made aware of the truth. You say, well, can they do that without Scripture? Sure they can. Nature itself bears witness of that. Do they accept God or do they reject God when they get to that point? An infant, it could be two years old, it could be three years old, it could be four years old, it could be seven or eight years old. You have people that sometimes are developmentally disabled that may be in their 50s and 60s and 70s and still have not reached that age. They've never reached that level. We find that according to Jeremiah, according to Deuteronomy, that God considers those that do not know that difference. He considers them innocents. So what we have is a nature that is prone to sin. And then we have a distinct moment of awareness that we are sinning. And at that point, we now are accountable. That we are sinning against a holy God. You say, when is that age? Can't tell you. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it does tell us it's for those who have the understanding of the truth. They have that truth in their hearts. And they know those things. I hope that will be a help to us. Uh, again, we can't point to a definitive passage of Scripture and says this is where it says all children will be in heaven. But I think by looking at the other truths that we have looked at tonight, there's not much room for us to leave here thinking anything other than that. That all children uh, up to that age, uh, if they die before they have trusted Christ as their Savior, will be in heaven. They are in, a, they are in a place of innocence. doesn't mean that they're without their sin nature. 
It just means that God does not hold that sin against them. I didn't bring... Oh, maybe I did. Let me see if I've got this. I might have this passage. I'm going to show you one other one that is kind of an interesting passage to think about. Let's see if this is it. Hmm... All right, this isn't the one I was looking for, but this is another good one. John chapter number 12. Yeah, that's not the one I'm wanting to do. I'll have to find it for you. It's in Matthew. I know, I know which one I'm thinking about. Let me, let me give you the gist of what the passage teaches, and then I'll find the passage for you. And, and if you're interested, I'll let you know on Sunday. Uh, it's in Matthew, and uh, the Pharisees come to Christ. And they're, they're talking about whether they're going to be judged for their sin or not judged for their sin. And he says a statement along these lines, that if they were blind, they would be innocent of the law. And I'll have to get that passage for you again. And the idea being that had they not had understanding. But then he goes on to say in the very next verse, but since you have that light, you have that understanding, you are held accountable for it. And I'll I'll try to get that passage for you again. That's another great verse that helps support that. I thought I had it written down here, and I don't, so I apologize for that. So um, anyway, I hope that will be a help to you tonight. Um, Again, this is a harder one to do than maybe what we did last week. And that there's not a very strong definitive verse, but there are a lot of strong passages that support that idea and that thought. And uh, we do believe that um, until they get to that place where the truth is understood in their hearts, that they have an understanding between good and evil, um, that God looks at them as innocent and they are not judged until that time. All right? So I hope that will be a help to you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. I pray that you would help us as we learn your word to rightly divide it. And, Lord, we certainly don't want to read things into Scripture, nor do we want to uh, twist it to try to say what we want it to say. But, Lord, we want to come to it. There are certain illustrations we've looked at tonight. Certainly David believed this. Others in the Gospels, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, made it imperative that uh, these little children were going to be such as would be the greatest in the kingdom. And then we find that in the Old Testament there were indications that there was innocence. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to know and to rightly understand and hold your truth and your word. That these things will be a help to us if we ever have someone come to us and wonder. That we could be able to take your word and show them some things that would be a comfort and a help to them. We pray that you'll dismiss us now with your blessings. Thank you for allowing us to be here tonight and the time around your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.